It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Rob Rang. Hope you and your loved ones are having an exciting Memorial Day holiday. This episode coming your way courtesy of Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with less sugar, less calories, gluten-free. Get $10 off your first box by using the code LOCKEDON at BuiltBar.com. They've also got a special offer this week for the Memorial Day holiday. You can get an additional $5 off every box of bars. That can be used along with the $10 off Locked On promo code. they got a few new flavors as well that you can try out. Peanut butter banana, coconut pecan pie, blueberry lemon. Four new flavors total. So check that out at BuiltBar.com. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. Last week, reports surfaced the Seahawks were trying to sign a veteran running back. There is some growing concern in the organization that Rashad Penny is not going to be ready for the start of the season, recovering from a torn ACL likely to start the year on the pup list, which would mean he would miss the first six games. So they've been linked to a couple of players, most notably Devonta Freeman, the former Pro Bowler for the Falcons. They reportedly offered him a one-year deal. He turned that offer down. So the Seahawks quickly turned their attention to Carlos Hyde, and within 24 hours, Rob, they had reached a one-year deal worth up to $4 million to bring the veteran back in as an insurance option with Penny still recovering from that knee injury. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense, Corbin, especially when you can just kind of consider the type of back that that Carlos Hyde is. I mean, this is a a six-foot, 230-pound, you know, just runaway freight train. I mean, the former first-round pick by the San Francisco 49ers after a a, a very strong career at Ohio State. And he's bounced around a little bit in the NFL with with Jacksonville and Houston, but ran for 1,000 yards a season ago. It was was healthy in all 16 games, which is not something that you can say with, excuse me, with Devontae Freeman, obviously, who was a, a, a smaller back. And, you know, I was very excited about the possibility of the Seahawks bringing in Freeman because I think that he would be something that's a little bit different than what the Seahawks currently have, whereas with Carlos Hyde, I think that you are talking about a back who is very similar in style to what the Seahawks already have with Chris Carson. But you, you mentioned the, the fact that uh, Rashad Penny, obviously, is an injury question coming off the torn ACL late in the year. But even with Chris Carson... I think that Seattle has to be a little bit concerned with, with the cracked hip. I know there's been all this talk that he's going to be ready to go by when the regular season is set to start. But still, you want to have another back that, that knows exactly what to do. Uh, you know, just entering in this, uh, you know, this abbreviated training camp scenario that we're facing. So I think that this is, you know, kudos to the Seahawks. You can, you can argue if you'd like about how much it costs. But I think that it was important to have a starting caliber backup running back um, in Seattle obviously felt the same way and and quickly adjusting from Freeman to Hyde, as you mentioned. And you and I talked about this a little bit last week when the reports had surfaced about Devonta Freeman being a player the Seahawks were trying to court and sign, and then he turned down the contract. I understand the contrasting styles. From that standpoint, Freeman made sense. But 
Carlos Hyde is a Seahawks running back. There's no doubt in my mind. You mentioned the size at 230 pounds. Really good between the tackles. Runs downhill. Creates yardage after contact. He's a capable receiver too. I I didn't feel like Houston used him enough in that capacity. But in 2017, he had 59 receptions out of the backfield for the 49ers. So he's a capable receiver. And the last couple teams he's played for just didn't use him much in that capacity. He's solid in pass pro. So this is a solid running back. He's never been a Pro Bowl caliber player in the NFL or all pro caliber. He's been a starter for a number of different teams. And he's not a guy that's going to create issues in the locker room. So it's not surprising to me the Seahawks went after him. You mentioned the price point. That's certainly something that's debatable here. When you're going up to $4 million with a guy that by the end of the season could be your number three running back, that seems pretty pricey, but there's so much uncertainty with Penny, and then you add in the fact that Chris Carson missed most of his rookie season with a fractured ankle, and then he had some injury issues during his second season that cost him a couple games, and then he got injured at the end of the year last year. He has had injury problems throughout his football career. You have got to have insurance there. And there will be some people that argue, well, then why'd they draft DJ Dallas? Well, they like DJ Dallas, but he is still pretty new to the running back position. He was a receiver when he went to Miami originally. So he's still learning the position. Travis Homer, we've talked about this time and time again. I like him as a third down back. I just don't know that he can be a workhorse in the NFL at just around 200 pounds, a little bit too light, even though he runs much bigger than what he looks like he is. But that being said, you're bringing in a guy that ran for over 1,000 yards last year for the Texans. It gives you one hell of an insurance policy in case Carson gets banged up. If Penny has to redshirt this year, I wouldn't completely rule that out with how late his injury happened in December. It's going to be really tough for him to come back for the start of the season. And if he's still not 100%, they might not force the issue. And who knows when he's going to come off the pup list. So to me... The price of this is not exactly ideal, giving him up to $4 million with incentives to bring in a guy that is probably going to be your second or third running back, but at the same time, the nature of that position, especially how much Seattle loves to run the football, I think that this is an okay deal, and I I think that they picked the right guy here. Devonta Freeman for $5 million, I wouldn't have taken when I can get Hyde for 3 to $4 million when I know he's going to fit that between-the-tackles downhill approach that the Seahawks are looking for. The one way I would argue with you a little bit, Corbin, is that I, I know I might have been willing to give Freeman the five million. I mean, I, I think in in either case, whether it be uh, in Hyde, whether it be Freeman, I think that it all comes down to you know just how does the, the organization feel about their health? Uh, you know, they get an interview when they get an interview an opportunity. There's there's been some talk that, that Freeman perhaps um, you know is. Uh, you know, maybe looking towards the the end of retirement kind of thing, and, and maybe is not ready to to really fully commit. To, you know, and so all of those types of things I think are are absolutely critical because this is Chris Carson's job. But at the same time, you do want to create a competitive situation. It's not just the durability issues that Carson's had. Of course, we all remember the, the fumble issues that he had a year ago. And so to me, it was critical that, that Seattle find themselves a, again, a legitimate starting caliber running back. I, I hear you and, and others that would say about DJ Dallas or say about Travis Homer. And I would just echo the exact same things that you just said, Corbin, as far as, you know, Dallas's inexperience and, and Homer's lack of size, uh, 
you know, and, and with, with with Carlos Hyde again, um, you have a guy who who is a proven commodity, and, and the Seattle needs to hit the ground running, um, you know, literally and figuratively th- this season. And so I, I think that for the the price point that you're talking about at this point in the season, I mean, there, there was a reason why I was you know among those arguing that Seattle should have been considering a running back very very early in this draft class, and it's just again because I think it is such a critical po- component of their offense. So to, to get a guy like, like Carlos Hyatt at this point, uh, I think it made an awful lot of sense for the Seahawks. And, um, you know, again, it, is, it was fairly predictable just because of the way that they are built to, to be successful. When we return for the second quarter, we're going to continue two weeks of Seahawks what-if scenarios. This time, we're going back to 2005. How would history look if the Seahawks won the Lombardi Trophy at Ford Field in Super Bowl 40? Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Later in the third quarter, going to mix things up a little bit. We normally do our mailbag segment in the middle of the show. We're going to close out the show answering your questions. But first, continuing our What If series here on the Locked On Seahawks Podcast. Last week, we looked at a bunch of interesting scenarios. This is one that you and I, Rob, have been discussing for quite some time. We were fired up to do this segment, so let's set the scene here. Seattle has been to the playoffs a few times since the turn of the century, but both times resulted in early exits. There was a mounting frustration within the fan base, but 2005 proved to finally be that magical year that fans were hoping for as the franchise finally got to the Super Bowl for the first time. Well, they got to the Super Bowl by by being the best team in the league. I mean, they were absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you, you look at this as a team that this is the year, of course, that Sean Alexander um, was, you know, one MVP with 28 touchdowns, setting an NFL record with the most rushing touchdowns ever in a single season. Matt Hasselbeck was a pro bowler. Walter Jones, of course, Steve Hutchinson, the the, the pair of Hall of Famers were in the, in the prime of their careers. Uh, Lofa Tatupu came 
came in there and was absolutely dominant force on the defensive side of the ball, but he wasn't the only one. The Seahawks actually, you know, led the NFL that year. I believe it was 50 quarterback sacks, so roughly double what Seattle had last year. So, I mean, this was a phenomenal team. And, and that's the thing, Corbin, is that, you know, I, I go back and, and think about that, that Super Bowl team going up against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, one of those teams that's just as, as, as iconic as it gets in NFL history. And I think when we talk about the what ifs, I, I think you look at that game and you just think, what if that game had been called, you know, a little bit fairly? Because I thought that the best team was the one wearing the blue. Yeah, that's been one of the most debated Super Bowls out there. There were so many questionable calls. And I'm still remembering John Madden. I believe it was Sean Locklear that got called for a holding penalty in the second half. And they they replayed it, and John Madden was just flabbergasted. Like, what am I looking at? I don't see a hold there. And then there was, of course, the Daryl Jackson push-off that really didn't happen. And they ended up negating that. Ben Roethlisberger not being in the end zone and then replay showed that and they still said it was a touchdown. I mean, I could keep going. There were countless plays in that game where you were wondering what the officials were looking at. That said, you never want to make excuses for officiating in a game. And certainly the Seahawks had opportunities to win that game and they ended up kicking themselves several times and just weren't able to get the job done. But looking at the season as a whole, Seahawks were 13-3 and for the first time in franchise history. They get the number one overall seed in the NFC. You mentioned Sean Alexander's brilliance with over 1,800 rushing yards, was the NFL rushing title winner that year, got league MVP. Seahawks had the number one offense in the entire league. They had the number seven defense in the league. This was just a dominant all-around team that had a really good blend of veterans and, and young guys, you mentioned Lofa Tatupu being a rookie that year. He was the only guy on the team with over 100 tackles. And so he had a fantastic rookie year. Then you had some veterans up front. You had guys like Bryce Fisher, Grant Wistrom, and you had big defensive tackle Rocky Bernard. They had a bunch of guys that were in that five, six, seven, eight sack uh, threshold. And for that reason, they didn't have a league leader in sacks, but as a team, they were outstanding. They knew how to get to the quarterback. They, they, it was just a really fun defense to watch. And so they get in the playoffs. They withstand the Redskins in the divisional round. And then they just beat down the Carolina Panthers, a really good Carolina Panthers team, I may add. And they just beat them down in the NFC title game to get to the Super Bowl. And then, of course, that unfortunate game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think you and I would both agree the Steelers were coming in playing house money. They were the number six seed in the AFC getting to the Super Bowl, which is just unheard of. And sometimes you just got to go with destiny. And it seemed like destiny was on the Steelers' side that year. But from a talent perspective, there is no doubt in my mind the Seahawks were the more talented team on both sides of the ball that year. Yeah, they were. And, you know, I, I as I mentioned before, Corbin, with, with Pittsburgh Steelers, and that was a team I grew up absolutely loving. I mean, they, they played football the way that I wanted teams to play, just in, in the, just the physicality, the depth. The, 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 uh, even going back to the, you know, the original one of the three, four defenses and just the Blitzburg idea and everything about what did what was just my kind of football. And, and so to me, it was really a legitimizing game. I mean, not only, obviously, was Seattle going to be 
going for a Super Bowl championship, but they were going to be going for against a team like Pittsburgh. And to see Seattle kind of go toe-to-toe with them from a from a, a physicality standpoint, from a toughness standpoint, um, to me it was one of the more you know interesting things about that game. And it, and it did feel a little bit more like, like, like Seattle was robbed than, than maybe some of the other uh, you know Super Bowls where anytime a team – feels like that they were in it and then lose at the end, of course they feel robbed. But it, it really did feel like, like Seattle was, uh, you know, again, kind of controlling the tempo of that game. And as you mentioned, with, with, with the Steelers kind of coming in off the, you know, on, on a hot streak as a wild card team and, and Seattle being so dominant, then uh, it, it just felt like it was a game that, that Seattle could have taken. One of the things I wanted to mention about that too is just – you know, we're playing the what if game. To me, it's the it's the what if after that game. Uh, you know, what the, the decisions that Seattle made, the, the fact that that it allowed Jerome Bettis, uh, allowed Bill Cowher, basically both kind of walk off into the sunset. I mean, it isn't just for the Seahawks. I mean, there was so many what ifs about this game and what happened for both those franchises moving afterwards. It seemed like the Seahawks, I don't know how to explain this, but we saw this with them after they lost the 2014 Super Bowl to the New England Patriots, that immediately a big move was made after that game. We saw the Seahawks go out and trade for Jimmy Graham, and this was one of our what-ifs last week. What if the Seahawks didn't make that move? But they were making some aggressive, bold moves because we just came up short winning the Super Bowl we think we can get back, so let's go add some more star power. And we saw general manager Tim Ruskell do that after the 2005 season, but the main difference here, the Seahawks had two huge free agents heading into that season on their offensive side of the football. They had Sean Alexander and Steve Hutchinson getting set to hit free agency, and this to me is still the biggest gaffe as far as personnel roster moves in Seahawks history with a player that was already on the team in the prime of his career. They gave Sean Alexander an eight-year deal. He was almost 30 years old, so that didn't make any sense. But that was not the biggest head-scratcher. It was using the transition tag on Steve Hutchinson when the franchise tag would have cost $600,000 more. In NFL world, $600,000 is like you and me pulling out a quarter out of a wallet why they were not willing to do that and they used their franchise tag on their kicker Josh Brown instead I will just never understand that rationale what the Seahawks were thinking there and that was really the biggest game-changing move now is if they end up winning that game against Pittsburgh does that change how they handle Hutchinson's situation who knows but it seemed like after that game they kind of were playing this we got to go out and get some defensive pieces we got to get some receivers and They started throwing money at people like Nate Burleson and Julian Peterson, who were both good players, but that was money, some of it, that they could have just franchise tagged Steve Hutchinson, and you don't have the whole poison pill incident where he ends up going to the Minnesota Vikings, and you keep that historically dominant left side of the offensive line together for at least a few more years. I think that was a huge reason why Seattle couldn't get past the divisional round the next couple of years. They got to the playoffs, but they just couldn't get deeper into the playoffs. I think Steve Hutchinson was that big of a difference maker for them. I I absolutely agree with you, Corbin. I think that losing Steve Hutchinson at that point in his career set the franchise back. As as I mentioned before, this was, again, 
Sean Alexander deserves a great deal of credit, and he got that credit financially with the, the you know getting the MVP award. But Steve Hutchinson won. Uh, Steve Hutchinson was a is a Hall of Famer for a good reason, and uh, you know, and it's rare that you're voted in the Hall of Fame, especially as an interior offensive lineman. You've played for a couple of different franchises, and so to me, that's just that much more of a testament to how great of a player that he was. And just as you well know, what a, what a dominant left side of the offensive line that that was. Uh, that the fact that that Seattle was so much more than just that running game, though, as we just talked about with, with their defense and leading the NFL in sacks. Matt Hasselbeck was playing his best football. Uh, of his career and obviously was was very confident at that point. I mean, Seattle was absolutely humming. And so to unfortunately lose Hutchinson, uh, again, I think that that took this team from not only potentially winning that Super Bowl against Pittsburgh, I think that they would have been a Super Bowl contender for the next couple of years after that. Obviously, Seattle wound up not winning a single Lombardi Trophy three at that time. Yeah, I don't want this to turn into what if Steve Hutchinson, and I wrote an article about this today, but what if Hutchinson got the franchise tag? That really was the big difference maker here, though. Out of that Super Bowl loss, they used that money on Burleson and bringing in Julian Peterson. They traded for Deion Branch, eventually getting him from the Patriots, and they got some decent numbers out of Deion Branch, but he was never a game-changing talent for their offense the few years that he was in Seattle. And so... In hindsight, it was just it was a decision at the time that left me scratch my head, and now we are nearly 15 years removed from that move, and it still it just baffles me. What, what was Tim Ruskell thinking, letting him go? And who knows? If they win the Super Bowl, they might make the same stupid decision. They might let him go and re-sign Sean Alexander. I mean, we don't know how all this plays out, but we know, looking back, that they could have kept both of those players. They could have re-signed Sean Alexander for that eight-year deal. As ill-advised as it was, they could have given him that deal and franchise tag Steve Hutchinson. That just meant they weren't going to be getting either Burleson or Julian Peterson. And I look at the statistics from the next year. I mean, Burleson didn't give him much on offense his first season that he was with the team. They had enough quality receivers. There's just a number of different things that could have played out differently there. And I look at that game against the Chicago Bears. Fast forwarding one year, they were playing the Bears in the divisional round. They had the ball past midfield. And they had, I believe it was third and two. I'd have to look back at the box score. But Matt Hasselbeck dropped back and ended up getting sacked. When I think if they had Steve Hutchinson in the lineup, they would have given the ball right back to Sean Alexander and ran it down that really good Bears defense's throat. They were doing it without Hutchinson anyway. You put him into the lineup late in that game, I think Seattle wins in Chicago, and I think they have a great chance to get back to the Super Bowl and get redemption for that loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing is that you, you took out one of the absolutely most critical components of, of the, the, the best running game in all of the NFL. I mean, and, and again, we talked about we don't want to make this just about Hutchinson, but <clears throat> when you combine Hutchinson with Robbie Tobek, who was a pro bowler um, in 2005, and again, obviously, Walter Jones with Max Strong as well. I mean, they were just a well-oiled machine. And, and all of those players, of course, came back <clears throat> in 2006, except for Hutchinson so that was the that was the difference and so as as far as you're saying Corbin you just don't understand it I mean I I I just don't understand it from a football perspective uh, and I don't think that many people can I don't know how you can argue it but I think that it, it is easy to go back in hindsight 
you know, when when you consider the way that Sean Alexander's career unfortunately tailed off. I mean, but at, at that point, he had led the NFL in, in rushing two years in a row. Um, you know, he was the toast of the, of the town, not only in Seattle, but in the NFL as the reign MVP. It would have been difficult to let a player like that walk. And so I think that Seattle basically just made the top priority Alexander. I think that was a mistake because I, I believe that Hutchinson was the better player. But at the same time, I understand why they did that. Obviously, it just did not work out because they thought they were going to be able to get Hutchinson and Josh Brown and Sean Alexander back. And obviously, that was a critical, critical mistake. And if they would have gotten back Hutchinson, who knows? Alexander might have been able to squeeze out another year or two of over 1,000 yards rushing. That's how big of a difference Steve Hutchinson made on that offensive line. And they really struggled to find a replacement for him. They rotated through five or six left guards in like a three- or four-year span, while Hutchinson was getting multiple first-team All-Pro selections with the Minnesota Vikings. So that move, in hindsight, really was the biggest difference maker. But... Who knows, free agency might have played out totally different if the Seahawks won that Super Bowl. It might have played out exactly the same. That might have been the game plan. It might have been like the last dance with Jerry Krause where I don't care what happens, we're going to transition tag Steve Hutchinson. And if that's the case, again, I don't really understand the rationale. When we come back for the third quarter, we're going to answer your questions in our weekly mailbag segment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. We're going to wrap up our Monday Memorial Day podcast with our weekly Locked On Seahawks mailbag. You guys dished out a ton of great questions. We're going to see if we can answer as many as possible here in this third quarter. First one coming from Luke Allen. I want to see more of Marquise Blair in 2020. How can Seattle incorporate him into the defense to get more playing time? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think that uh, with Quandre Diggs, you have a guy that you have to have on the field, and I think that Marquise Blair is right there. Uh, and, and so the, the player that I did not mention is Bradley McDougal. Now I love his his the, the the instincts, the you know the awareness that he possesses. But just in terms of a playmaker, I really think that that Seattle has to try to get the young Marquise Blair onto the field alongside Quandre Diggs. I believe that they are both interchangeable. I think the Blair can be able had, does have the physicality, be able to play strong side. Obviously, he he's been a free safety as well. Um, and, and so to me, that is why you should be able to expect Blair getting onto the field a lot more in in 2020 just because he does have that versatility I think you're going to see Seattle run some three safety packages we're starting to see this happening in the league and I'm not even talking about just big nickel I wouldn't be surprised if the Seahawks start exploring that where you have three safeties that are in the back half of the defense and you can do some rotating you can run some robber coverage out of that You can do some disguises. I wouldn't be surprised if the Seahawks start to dip into that a little bit, especially how poorly the defense played at times last year. And, of course, the traditional big nickel. If you have a team that's got a really good tight end, I could see Marquise Blair being used against that tight end in coverage. There are ways to get him on the field. He's just got to show that 
that he can earn the coaching staff's trust because not knowing your assignments is the number one way to not be on the field for Pete Carroll. He wants guys that he knows are playing 100% speed-wise and know their assignments, and that was something all of last year that Pete Carroll echoed multiple times. There were some concerns there with trusting him. So without having an offseason that's normal to be able to get on the field and work on some of that stuff, we'll see what kind of jump that he makes. But there's no question about the talent Marquise Blair brings to the table. With McDougal being in the final year of his contract, you would think that he is going to be the starter and waiting for 2021 if he's not on the field a lot more this upcoming season. I wouldn't rule him out beating out McDougal for a position in the starting lineup at some point, as, as well-respected as McDougal is. Blair, I think, has much higher upside, and he used his second-round pick on it, but he's got to earn those opportunities. And that was something last year he he had flashes on the field, but we just didn't see enough consistency, and obviously the coaches didn't see it on the practice field enough to get him out there on the field consistently. Jim Morris, second question. Is there any wiggle room with the cap at this point? Is Everson Griffin an option still? Clowny deal seems all but over. So what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, Corbin, I'll, I'll leave you to you know to give out whatever numbers uh, you know. But I, the what I will say is that obviously Seattle has been able to adjust their salary cap in, in, in terms of being able to get Carlos Hyde here recently. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think that they are always going to be willing to explore different options. Now that that goes without saying, but uh, you know, to me, going back to the the original point of the question as far as the pass rushers are still available, I I do still think that there's a possibility that Seattle is going to be able to bring in somebody else, perhaps a Everson Griffin. I think that he is becoming more of a possibility than Jadavion Clown, just because of the, the fact that we're, we're getting that much closer. I think the price point is going to be that much better for Griffin, who I still think is a quality football player, but you know, it, it's, it remains to be seen to me. This is all about players now, whether or not they are willing to come in at a better price point um, than they have been. And that to me, to me is why Seattle was able to come to a very quick agreement to Carlos Hyde. And they obviously have not been able to do the same thing with one of the pass rushers. I think the chances of signing either one of those players, Griffin or Clowney went down some with that Hyde move, but you can always make, you can always make salary cap space and they've got a several restricted free agents that they signed Jacob Hollister, Brandon Jackson, David Moore, Joey Hunt. I think Hunt's probably the least likely of those players to get released, but none of those players would have a dead cap hit and you could create up to eight or nine million in cap space by releasing those four. Now, I don't think they're going to be releasing all of those players, but my point is if the gap between them signing somebody like Griffin and not signing them is between four or five million in cap space, they have the means to be able to do it by cutting a few players, which could be maybe David Moore and Brandon Jackson, or maybe it's Brandon Jackson and Hollister because of the tight end log jam that they now have. There are possibilities there for them to create room. That being said, I would think Griffin is the better chance of those two. I'm at this point, I'm almost completely out on the Jadevian Clowney thing. Now, this has been a weird offseason, so you can't rule anything out, but it just seems unlikely at this stage that we're going to see Clowney back in uniform unless he's going to take dramatically less than the best offer the team made months ago to him. And maybe that ends up happening, and he just ends up, you know, his strategy backfires. I, I just don't see it, though, right now. 
Ray tweets, I'm curious about tight end usage, specifically how they will use Parkinson. It seems that they will be using more tight ends than ever this year, given how the offseason has went. I would love to see them run two tight end sets 50% or more of the time. So I guess he was asking what our thoughts on the tight end usage would be this year. Well, I think you're going to see tight ends being used a lot more often throughout all of the NFL. I mean, the success of teams that have been using dual tight ends has been well documented throughout this offseason. I think that Seattle is one of the teams, of course, that has had a great deal of success doing that. They just do it in a different way. You know, there's so many teams who throw the ball, the tight ends, of course, with the way that Seattle used George Fant, you know, so successfully over the last couple of years. And that obviously is very, very different than how the Seahawks are going to be using Kobe Parkinson. And so I, like our reader or like our listener, and thank you for the question, by the way, I, I'm very curious to see that myself. I mean, where, where Parkinson was at his best, in my opinion, at Stanford was, uh, you know, basically split out wide like a like a big slot receiver and then occasionally used as an inline tight and occasionally used as an H-back or put in motion. And so I, I think that because, again, it's kind of like we talked about before with the defensive backs, it's the versatility of Mark Keith Blair, it's the versatility that 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 Parkinson offers you that that allows Seattle to be creative. When you're talking about a young player, you want to try and scale back on that versatility. But the the skill set is one of the things that that caused you to draft both of these Pac-12 players as early as you did. Yeah, I think that Parkinson at the beginning of his Seahawks career is going to be used more as a receiving tight end, kind of like what they did with Jacob Hollister last year. I think they're hoping he gets stronger and develops into a true inline tight end. And I think he can be that kind of a player. We have to remember he was 220 pounds when he arrived at Stanford. So this is not a guy that has been a, a true blocking tight end at any point. He's still learning how to be that. And he's six foot seven. There's plenty of room to add muscle to that frame. He's got the mindset He's got to work with him as far as his technique goes and and bulking up a little bit so that he can handle playing in the trenches. I think at some point he is going to be a true in-line tight end, a guy that you can move all over the field. Right now I think you're going to see him use him a bit more like they did with Jacob Hollister last year, though, where you're getting him outside and letting him make some plays. I think you'll see some three tight end sets from the Seahawks this year with the players they brought in as long as they can keep Will Disley and Greg Olson healthy. But they've got a lot of different types of players there flexibility to move some of them out as slot receivers and that creates matchup problems for opposing defense hunter tweets what are the odds antonio brown is in the seahawks uniform rob this this just won't go away and unfortunately uh, from what i've been told there is some legitimacy to this well i i I still think there's probably only a five ten percent chance uh you know i mean but at the same time i think that there is a chance you know we've talked about that before with the you know, Harry and Lloyd and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's the thing is, is that I, I think that if you are bringing in a guy like Antonio Brown, then, then some are going to question if you are being a little dumb or dumber. But the, the, the talent is undeniable. Um, the, the rapport that he seems to have with Russell Wilson um, is something that you have to take into consideration as well. Um, you know, and, and again, I think what it all comes down to is, is the Seahawks are one of those teams. Corbin, we've talked about this so many times before that they are willing to to give guys an opportunity especially if they are that gifted and, and Antonio Brown certainly is that I'm gonna say 15 percent and some might say wow that's that's kind of high well I think it has to go back to that Russell Wilson Antonio Brown relationship 
it seems to me that this is something that has been known for a while now. There were pictures surfacing a few years ago when he was still with the Steelers that those two were working out in the offseason together. So they have a pretty strong rapport as it is. So if you're able to keep him on track and out of trouble, which is a huge if at this point in Antonio Brown's career, but if you were able to do that, there's no question this guy's a game-changing receiver. He instantly becomes your number one guy. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf are fantastic. But Antonio Brown had six straight years of over 100 receptions for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He, I mean, he's a Hall of Fame receiver. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, what he's done the last year or so is probably going to cloud the judgment of those who are trying to make that decision down the road of him getting into the Hall. Maybe he has some redemption. But I think the big issue here, more than anything, is that we don't even know if he's going to be able to play this next year. He's still got three investigations ongoing for personal conduct violations. He's had rape allegations against him, a number of other things. So he's got a lot of issues he's dealing with off the field. If they're going to sign him, it's not going to be anytime soon. So that's the big thing here. Josh Gordon, if he gets reinstated, then you can just sign Josh Gordon. You're good to go. Antonio Brown, you sign him. You don't know if he's going to get suspended or not because they're still trying to figure all this stuff out. And so the talent kind of gets put in the back there. You have to figure out, is he even going to be available to us? There's just a lot of obstacles here. So I'm going to say 15%. I still think it's pretty unlikely, but maybe there's a chance because of that dynamic, him and Russell Wilson have a pretty good chemistry together. DeKalen season tweets, what rookie after the fourth round will play the largest role for the Seahawks in year one? I think that's got to be Alton Robinson. Uh, I, I just think that, that he's going to have some opportunities with the pass rush. I, I think that the talent is, is legitimate. I, I gave Al Robinson a third-round grade based on tape. And, and so I, I think that, that you, you see his burst up field. Um, and, and so I, I just think that you are going to see him. Not only, not only do I expect that he would probably log the most minutes of, of Seattle's late-round picks, I, I think that he has, the, he has the, the potential to make the most – you know, meaningful impact. Um, you know, just because I think that he can be a guy that 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 gets you a sack, gets you a forced fumble. Um, that, that's certainly something that he did throughout his career. And and to me, one of the things I like most about him um, is the fact that he did kind of have a knack for for playing his best games in, in kind of you know big moments. I mean, like two sacks in the Senior Bowl game itself. I mean, I personally would have rather seen him dominate the the Senior Bowl practices rather than the game. But still, there's something to be said for that. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that is a as a, as a day three draft pick, you gotta have a you know an eye popping play, and so I think to me he's the guy that has the ability to do that. So this question's a little misleading because it says after the fourth round. So does that mean I can't pick Parkinson or DJ Dallas? I would assume so. If that's the case, I agree with you on Alton Robinson because I don't see. We've talked about this before. I think Freddie Swain could have a chance to be a return guy right away. I don't see him making yep. an impact on offense as a rookie. And then your seventh round pick, Stephon Sullivan, has a ton of upside, but he's going to be fighting just to make the roster right off the bat with all the tight ends they've got and the number of receivers they have as well. And so to me, Alton Robbins is the best setup to be able to immediately contribute. If I'm allowed to include fourth round picks, then Parkinson is easily my answer because just his red zone impacts we've talked about several times. I think Russell Wilson's going to love having a six foot seven target with soft hands that he can throw the football to inside the 20 yard line. So even if he's not playing a ton, the rest of their snaps, I think he's going to be a factor in the red zone. And so for that reason alone, he would be my pick there. If it's after the fourth round, then I'm going to go with Alton Robinson as well. 
Last question here, closing out our mailbag. This one coming from Pim Lubbers tweets, who do you anticipate starts on the offensive line? And do you expect them to be better than last year's starting five, specifically in pass pro? So early prediction here, Rob, who's going to be the starting five for the Seahawks up front? Uh, well, of course, Dwayne Brown, you know, left tackle. Um, and then I, I do think that it's, I don't know. I mean, Jamarco Jones and Phil Haynes, I'm really, I, I, I want to see those two young players battle it out. I know that Mike Tapati is obviously is the incumbent. I'm going to go with Phil Haynes. He's the player that I, I just, I, I believe in his talent. Um, so I'm going to go with Phil Haynes. Uh, I, I think that, I think it's going to be BJ Finney. He's actually has a chance to kind of pushing Joey Hunt. I'm going to go with the incumbent on that one, um, you know. But I do think that Finney is a legitimate player. But at, right now, I'm, I'm going to go with Dwayne Brown. Uh, I'm going to go with Phil Haynes. I'm going to go with, with, with Hunt as, as your center uh, at the right guard position. I think it's going to be Damian Lewis. As kind of going back to our last question about the the, the rookies that that maybe are getting, not getting a lot of attention. Obviously, Damian Lewis is a third round pick, and so it would have been different than the question. But I think that he is your kind of unheralded rookie who makes an immediate impact. Damian Lewis, your starting at right guard, uh, and of course the Brandon show is your right tackle so you and i are going to differ on just one i'm going to go with Dwayne brown at left tackle and i've got phil haynes winning that left guard job as well i've got bj finney as the starting center i think joey hunt's obviously going to be in the mix there but they didn't give bj finney a two-year deal worth eight million dollars to ride the pine i think he is going to be the guy at center damian lewis is going to be the right guard and I think that right now it would be a major upset if anyone else is starting over there. Obviously, Jordan Simmons, a player they really like, but he has not been able to stay healthy. So I think that's Damian Lewis's job to lose right off the bat as a rookie. And then Brandon Shell is going to be your starter at right tackle. This is going to be my one caveat here. I think when we get into training camp, Brandon Shell is a player that got benched by the Jets. Yes, the Seahawks gave him a pretty decent contract, $5.5 million per year. But I still think Jamarco Jones, they're going to look at him at guard. I think they'll look at him at tackle. I know he is not the best fit at right tackle, but he's played some snaps there. I wouldn't be surprised if there's an open competition there, even with the contract they gave Brandon Shell. That would kind of be my caveat here. I think Shell's going to be the guy, but I would not be stunned if you end up having Jamarco Jones playing there on the right side because they really like him, and he's now going into his third season. You want to get him on the field. I think his better chance to make an impact right now, though, is at tackle than the guard spots with all the players that they've added there. So going with the last part of that question, I do think this group is going to be better in pass protection with some of the additions they've made. B.J. Finney is outstanding in pass pro based on the film that I've had a chance to watch. and So I think he's going to be an upgrade at that position. You look at the guard spots, Phil Haynes, played fairly well in pass pro in that second half against the Packers. He's got pretty good film from his Wake Forest days. And Dwayne Brown's still going to be a rocket left tackle. Brandon Shell might be a little better right tackle in terms of pass pro than Jermaine Effetti. Run blocking, I think Effetti probably gets the advantage there. Maybe a wash overall, but I think he's a little better in pass pro. So I think you look at that group. Damian Lewis is a guy that has some issues sometimes moving laterally, but as a pass protector in a phone booth, he is really sound. So I think this group is going to be better. Are they going to be an elite pass protection group? Eh, Probably not but I think they're going to be a little better in that regard than last year. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. 
If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockSeahawks, at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast platform is by visiting our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on our Tuesday show, we're going to look back at an unfortunate injury that may have cost the Seahawks a chance to win a Super Bowl a year early. Plus, we'll look more in-depth at the receiver position You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Memorial Day. Go Hawks. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 